Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, again for the chance to study your word. I'm always thanking you for that, Father. Thanking you that the times are short, but the opportunities are still great. And if it were not for the busyness of our lives and for the distractions the world offers, we would be at your feet every day, every minute of every day. But as it is, Father, we're thankful for this opportunity. Let us gain the most out of it. Let us give ourselves totally over to what you provide in your word this this evening so that we may honor you with our obedience. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, without the law has been delivered, the Ten Commandments have been delivered, the narrative returns to describing the state in which we find the nation of Israel as they're gathered around the mountain. So it's been a little while since we've talked about them and their movements and where they're going, and we're back now to a point in that narrative. So let's dive right in. No reason to wait. Exodus 20, verses 18 through 21. Now, all the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. And they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But let not God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. So the people stood at a distance while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. Now, it's important to assemble an accurate timeline concerning the events that we've been studying in chapter 20, because it's actually easy to get confused about the comings and goings of Moses to and from God or to and from the people. This scene we're in, the one we've been in the whole time in chapter 20, it began back in chapter 19 after The Lord met with Moses on the mountain, and when they met together on the mountain, the Lord said this to Moses in Exodus 19.9. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud, so that the people may hear when I speak to you, and may also believe in you forever. Then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. Moses went up, received that instruction. Following this, Moses descended to the base of the mountain where the people were waiting, And he relayed to them what God said was about to happen, that he would arrive in a cloud and he would speak to the whole mass of them. That's what we heard in chapter 20. If you go a little further in 19, this is what Moses told the people when he got down to the base. 1916. So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there was thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. So that's the background for what we just went through in chapter 20. That was setting up the moment of God encountering or speaking to the people of Israel. Notice there was the elements of thunder and smoke and burning, the appearance of burning, fire and smoke ascending like a furnace. So then in chapter 20, we had the content of what the Lord spoke when he spoke to Moses and the people with that thunder and so on. We call it the Ten Commandments. It appears now from what we see at the end of chapter 20, that the people, as they stood there and heard all of this, it appears they didn't perceive the content of God's words so much as they simply were terrified by the whole experience. It's not clear that they really heard a lot of speaking. They're described as simply hearing thunder. 
they heard the thunder, they see the lightning, they hear the sound of a trumpet, they see the mountain smoking, and then it says the thunder continued to grow louder as the conversation progressed. So what they heard, we're not exactly sure. But then we see the effect of his words on the people. They are so afraid from having even heard what they heard, they turn to Moses and they say, we cannot hear this anymore. No more listening to God for us. They want him, Moses, to carry out all further communication with the Lord on their behalf, and then Moses can come and relate it to them directly. Now, Moses calms the people at this point by saying, you don't have to worry. You're not going to have to hear his voice anymore. The plan was always that I would hear it on your behalf. But he says, it was necessary for you to hear God at least one time so that you could personally experience the fear of the Lord. And by that fear, you would be encouraged not to sin. But as we learn later in the story of Israel, the fear of the Lord is not enough to ensure proper behavior. Not for us, not for them either. After that, Moses now leaves the people and he goes into the dark cloud that is shielding the people from the glory of God. But Moses is able to penetrate. He's allowed to see God's glory in some form. You're going to learn later in chapter 34 about the effect that it has on Moses personally to be in the presence of the Shekinah glory in this way. So now we're ready to move forward into more of the law of Moses. So what comes next in the law? Well, in chapter 20, we're going to look at the laws related to worship at the altar, the Jewish Bill of Rights, as it's typically called, and that encompasses a whole section that is two, almost three chapters long. So we'll get into the Bill of Rights, but not all the way through it. So let's go to chapter 20 again, the very end of 20 now, 22 through 26. This is laws related to worship at the altar. Verse 22, then the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, you yourselves have seen that I have spoken to you from heaven. You shall not make other gods besides me, gods of silver or gods of gold. You shall not make for yourselves. You shall make an altar of earth for me and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen in every place where I cause my name to be remembered. I will come to you and bless you. If you make an altar of stone for me, you shall not build it of cut stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you will profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar so that your nakedness will not be exposed on it. So here the Lord is prescribing instruction on how he wants to be worshipped corporately. But he prefaces these instructions with a warning. If you notice in verses 22 and 23, he says, As the nation endeavors to worship me, you've got to be careful never to violate the second commandment. And you do that anytime you create a graven image, any kind of idol to represent me. So I love the way he is putting two ideas together. Here is how you are to worship me, but there is a caution included. Here's what you're not to allow it to lead to. Because the Lord knew there is a persistent temptation in all men, and in Israel particularly, for our minds to turn to worshiping the Lord, who is all spirit, and then in the process to have a tendency to want something physical, to represent what is all spiritual. So that's a persistent desire we all have. We exist in the physical world, so we try to bring God closer to us by creating physical representations of God which become graven images or idols. Men want smells and bells. In the day that this was written to Israel, there were pagan idols, there were also Jewish idols, and today we have American idols. And... <laughs> Today, our graven images may be more sophisticated. 
than the ones that they chose, but they're equally corrupting. The ancient idols would take the form of wood or stone figurines, and today you even still see some churches that erect statues of similar kind. But more often, our spiritual crutches come in the form of crosses or altars or even the buildings themselves. Like figures made of wood or stone, we assign a man-made object with greater spiritual significance than it deserves. Confining the spiritual to the physical is a constant struggle for our flesh. And according to the, the second commandment, it is a sin to do so. When Jesus was asked about a similar topic in John 4, he said to the woman at the well that there would be a time when the Lord's worshipers would only worship in spirit and in truth. Right? And he was referring to a true form of worship that happens completely divorced from physical relics or for anything that would substitute for the spirit, which is God. So that's why in the way he prescribes worship for the Christian, we have no physical temple on earth. The Lord dwells in us instead. We have no assigned priests or priesthood for all our priests. There is no altar. There are no basins. There's no incense. There's nothing physical today that was previously required under the law in order for us to approach and to worship. So neither should we endeavor to replace them with something new in the physical. That doesn't mean you can't have a building. It doesn't mean that crosses are wrong. It means when those things become the way we focus our worship, as if at the foot of a fake cross set up in our church, well, that's where you have to be cautious that your mind isn't moving away from what is impossible to contain and localizing it to the point where you say you're in the house of God. No, you're not. You're in a building. There's no house of God unless you're talking about your body. So these are the things that start to invade our thinking and change our behavior in ways that are not helpful. So God didn't want that. So he says, I'm going to tell you how, but I'm also going to warn you what not to do. Speaking of the how, most of the sacrificial and ceremonial rules for worship are provided in Leviticus, which makes sense because Leviticus is the book that details the priesthood and the requirements of priesthood and all of the ceremonies of the priesthood. And the priests were the officials over worship. So that's where you would expect to see most of that stuff covered. But in Exodus, we do receive at times elements of what worship required. Here you're seeing the altar covered. Later, we're going to get the construction of the tabernacle. So God instructed the Jews to build two different types of altars. The Lord also directs the place of these altars, where they are to be set up, and the style of how they are to be built. First, the place. God will always assign the location of his altars. Now, before the law, patriarchs could set them up pretty much wherever they wanted, usually in response to some revelation of God, some great work of God, some appearance of God, that would be caused to set up an altar in that place. But we don't see God ever directing them to set it up or where to set it up, except in a couple of occasions. So there was more freedom, it would appear. But now formal worship was a response to God revealing himself And it would be on his terms. It was to become an institution of everyday life. And God was going to set it up to have it work in a certain fashion. And therefore, he dictates the manner and the place of worship. Now, there's a message embedded in this change from what was true for the patriarchs versus what is true today. The message is that men must approach the Lord on his terms, not on ours. The formality of the law creates this structure in which our approach to God is heavily regulated. And Paul said, the law kept men under such custody until Christ came. So the design of the altar is intended to communicate how sinful men truly are through some of the details. 
First, altars could be of earth or of stone. And the altar would be a place of sacrifice. That is to say, it would be a tabletop on which an animal or other offering was placed to be burned as a way of taking its value and sending it to God, so to speak, through the smoke of the fire. Therefore, altars are always places of sacrifice. That is their purpose. They are not religious objects decorating houses of worship. They are not tables on which to hold candles. They have only one spiritual purpose in all of God's word. They are a place in which animals are killed, blood is spilled, and bodies are burned. Therefore, churches, the New Testament church, should never feature an altar in the sanctuary since doing so implies a need for sacrifice. And Christ's sacrifice was sufficient for all time so that no new sacrifice will ever be necessary nor acceptable to the Lord. So placing a table in a building and calling it an altar is sacrilegious when we understand its purpose. If a stone altar was to be built, God goes a step further and dictates that the stone could not be cut or shaped by tools. Canaanite altars of this day were often elaborate in their construction and in their form and the way they were finished. So God's law has as its effect separating Israel from the rest of the peoples around them in the way they worship. They'd have these crude altars that are not hewn by human hands. They're just rocks piled up on top of each other. That's one of the ten purposes of the law, remember, to separate Israel out from the rest of the nations. But there's a much more important spiritual message in this design as well, as you probably know. The altar is, by definition, a place where men come to address the sin that separates them from God. And by address it, I mean to make ritual atonement for it. So our worship of God has to happen at an altar under the law. That altar has to be a place in which there is an atonement for sin taking place. So our worship depends on having some way to appease God's wrath for our sin. Without that appeasing, without that atonement, worship can't take place. So our sin is a barrier. It separates us from God. So until something addresses the problem of our sin, worship isn't possible. That's why Hebrews says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. He's referring to saving faith, faith that removes the reproach of sin by Christ's blood. So without that, you can't get to the stage of interacting with God in a way that can please him. You're separated from God by your sin. So that's the reason why worship took place at an altar. Atonement for sin was the means by which you enter into worship. And that means needed an altar in which sacrifice could be made. So now consider what it would mean if the object that God designated for sacrifice, that being the altar, if that was constructed by men using tools to work the stones into shape, what would that mean? It would send a message that by our work, men are participating in the atonement process. The altar would then stand as a testimony to man's work with craftsmen reflecting in pride upon their handiwork every time they looked at it, thinking to themselves, by my work on that object, I am assisting in making possible our approach, our worship of God. Because we played a role, so to speak, in that atonement. They could then boast of how they contributed to making atonement possible and thereby permitting men to worship God. That was the problem, essentially, that Paul was talking about in Ephesians 2 when he talked about the real method, the real way in which God saves men by his giving of grace to men. Paul says in Ephesians 2.8 through 2.10, For by grace you have been saved through faith, And that, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, 
not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So you've heard those words, I'm sure, out of Ephesians 2, most of you certainly. Paul mentions in 2.9 that the way God chose to bring salvation was in a manner that precluded men from ever boasting that they played any role at all in their salvation, even to the point of giving men the faith that saves them. That's why Paul says, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Faith is not of yourself, it is a gift of God. So that even in the fact that I can say I believed and was saved, I have to acknowledge, but even that was a work of God in my heart, so that no one may boast. My claiming that my faith was of my own intellectual reasoning is equivalent to a craftsman knocking a few round corners off of the stone on an altar, thinking myself as contributing to something that I had nothing to do with. The Lord has done all the work of salvation, and so his altar was designed to reflect that spiritual truth. The stones were left in their natural state, just as God formed them. Finally, the altar couldn't have stairs leading up to it. The altar itself couldn't be elevated up above the ground level such that you needed stairs to walk up to it. The reason for this prohibition, according to the Lord, was to prevent the priest's backside, for lack of a better term, to be exposed when they walked up the stairs. Men wore robes in that day, tunics. You might think of it like a lady's dress today. And women, you know that if you walk high enough above a crowd, you expose yourself eventually. And that was the concern God had. Now, that's very different also from the culture of the day. It was quite common among pagan priests in other cultures to officiate in ministry with little or nothing on. Priests often were naked as a part of how they performed their duties. So you'd have ministry leaders officiating entirely in the nude as part of their worship practices. I'm very glad God changed that, <laughs> that rule. And I've never had so many amens in my life come out of the audience. But there is another picture formed in that requirement of how God forbids priests nakedness, so to speak, from being exposed at the altar. The purpose of sacrificial atonement is to cover the nakedness of man's sin. Remember when Adam sinned, he discovered he was naked, that physical awareness his new awareness was an evidence of or a manifestation of the awakening of a sinful conscience. The awareness Adam experienced when he sinned was one of his jeopardy before God because of his sin. Now, this is an innate thing where he just knew what he felt. What he felt was that he was vulnerable before God now in a way that he never had felt before. That's why he hid when God was in the garden and his conscience reflecting that change in his spirit manifested itself as physical uh, changes as well, or physical feeling as well. He now felt exposed physically just as he was exposed spiritually. So that's the source of our shame about being naked or our unwillingness to want to be publicly naked unless we sear our conscience and overcome it. It's because there's an innate nature based on Adam's sin that we inherit that knows we are exposed, we are vulnerable before God. What is this exposure? Well, if we come into the presence of his holiness with our sin nature, we're judged. We receive that penalty. God programmed our conscience to reflect that in our spiritual state. Now, when you are innocent before God, you carry no sense of shame and therefore no sense of vulnerability and therefore no conscious awareness that you have anything to hide, whether spiritually or physically. When you're guilty, you feel that instinctive need to hide from 
authority. Look at any two-year-old who's painted on the walls and you ask, where are you? And they're hiding in their room, right? So God commands the priests to hide their nakedness because in keeping with the whole purpose of the event, it is the covering of sin, not the exposing of sin that's taking place. So that's the altar worship requirements. Now, chapters 21 through 23 begin the next section of the law. We're not covering all of that tonight, just 21. The section is called the section of ordinances, which is the opening verse of chapter 21. That's how it's described. It's also sometimes called the Jewish Bill of Rights. It concerns basic civil rights of Jewish society. You'll find in here the laws with regard to the rights of individuals and the consequences for people who violate the rights of individuals. So many of these laws reflect laws in our culture today. Others, though, are going to be wholly unique to the culture and to the time, and they're going to cause us to struggle a little bit. So as we look at them, it's probably good to give an upfront warning that you need to be careful about evaluating what these say in light of our culture and our day, because cultures change, truth doesn't. And what one culture holds to be true might be different from what another culture holds to be true. But truth isn't determined by the cultural view. Truth stands independent of what a culture may view. Chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. Now, these are the ordinances which you are to set before them. If you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years, but on the seventh he shall go out as a free man without payment. If he comes alone, he shall go out alone. If he is the husband of a wife, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall belong to her master and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out as a free man, then his master shall bring him to God. Then he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost and his master shall pierce his ear with an owl and he shall serve him permanently. So this first section of ordinances deals with the rights of slaves. And yes, slaves had rights in Jewish society. Now, immediately, we're all going to be struck by the apparent contradictions over how could rights be expressed in the context of slavery. And isn't slavery wrong to begin with? And therefore, why does God seem to condone it here? And so on. The answer is that our notion of slavery and the kind of slavery that is in view here are totally different. First, notice that the slave discussed here involves a Hebrew slave, according to verse 2. So one member of Israel is bought by another member of Israel and becomes that person's slave. Now, how does one Hebrew come up for sale to another within the nation of Israel? Well, the answer will provide our first distinction between slavery and the law and the form of slavery practiced in our nation's history or elsewhere. The Hebrew becomes a slave because he places himself up for sale. In other words, the person volunteers to become a slave or a servant of another Hebrew. Now, why would a Hebrew sell himself to another man? In most cases, it was to settle a debt. So if a Hebrew had indebted himself so much that he could not pay the debt with his assets, then he had to work off the debt. Since his debtors would have typically demanded immediate payment of the debt, the man couldn't wait to earn the money through normal employment over a series of years and then pay off the debt in that fashion. He's under the requirement to pay it all off now. So instead, he would sell himself as a slave. And in a sense, he was taking his wages in advance and then received no pay for the years he worked as a slave. But he also gave up his rights as a free man, which was significant. A Hebrew slave was the property of his owner since he was bought with a price. He worked for free because his wages had already been paid up front when he was purchased. 
Obviously, such an arrangement could be easily abused by the master once you have ownership over somebody. And a desperate debtor might even be willing to agree to some very unfair terms if they were desperate enough. So the law steps in and it limits the number of years someone could remain as a slave. And later it's going to also regulate the way he was treated. At the end of seven years, the slave must be set free. So obviously, the law also was limiting how much you could sell yourself for because the buyer was limited to seven years worth of labor and that had a certain value and they weren't going to give you more than you were worth. Now, the law then clarifies what do you do when you're in a state of slavery with someone and normal life continues for that person, at least at some level. For example, if they have a wife, how does this affect the family? So here you see God now regulating the rights of slaves. If a man entered with a wife, he left with a wife. In other words, the wife wasn't part of the deal, didn't belong to someone else. It was always his wife. If the man took an interest in one of the master's daughters or other servants' daughters, etc., then he could marry while he was in the home as a slave. But if he did so, he could not automatically take those people with him when he left slavery at the end of seven years. The slave must redeem his new family by paying a bride price to the master. Or he could leave them behind to work off that price just as he had worked off his own debt. Or he could stay with them and remain a permanent member of the household as a servant and his family with him. Now, if that doesn't sound fair for some reason, I want you to give careful thought to how this circumstance would play out in real life. First, a slave knew these rules every bit as much as the master did. So, if he decided to accept a wife while he was employed as a slave, he knew he was setting himself up for a difficult decision at the seven-year point. He knew that going in. So he was making a decision with his eyes wide open as to the consequences. If he was a slave for that six or seven years, it's also unlikely that he'd have any money to pay the bride price at the end of that seven years. He also knew that. So essentially, he was taking on more debt by accepting the wife. That's a decision. That meant he was marrying, knowing that he would either leave her behind and the children. They would have to continue in service to that master until he could find the money to come back later and redeem them. Or he was essentially committing to stay there. And he married with that expectation. So there's no unfairness here. The slave is only going to be there seven years. He knows that. And he's making a decision while he's there to complicate his situation. He chooses to do it. Obviously, this would be a severe hardship if he were to try to leave these women. So having a family was a strong incentive to remain in the master's house. Well, the master knew that, too. So the master had strong incentive to encourage the guy to get married. Well, everyone knows the rules. And sometimes that was the best deal for everyone concerned. Sometimes staying in that home was the best option for a man who may not have had a lot of other options. So in verses 5 through 6, the Lord makes a provision for a slave who would voluntarily become a permanent servant in the household. He would announce first his intention. So it's of his own volition he makes this decision. No one forces it. He was applying for permanent lifelong employment. He wouldn't do this if he didn't believe the master was a good, caring man who was fair. He had had his six or seven years to discover if this man was worth it. So he again, he had that knowledge. If he took this deal, then he's giving himself lifelong employment. He'd always have the care of the master. He'd never have to worry again about housing or food or unemployment. He'd be like a federal employee. (laughs) Now, the trick to this decision is once you decide you want this, the decision can never be reversed. 
So a permanent mark was made on the man's body by piercing his ear with this owl, nailing it through the ear to a doorpost. Once that had been done to his body, that mark made him always a slave. He could never change that again. And it changed his title or it changed the thing we call him. He stops being called a slave or a servant and he begins to be called a bond servant or a bond slave. That's why the New Testament authors frequently refer to themselves as bond servants of Christ. They're playing off of this status that the law made available. The thinking is that we in Christ have been bought with a price, that is Christ's blood, to become slaves of that master. But in our walk as disciples of Christ, we are voluntarily committing ourselves to follow and serve and obey Christ forever. So our salvation is permanent. We are slaves in the sense that we can never again be released from our relationship from Christ, but we are bond slaves in the sense that our service to Jesus is a conscious choice that we make in our walk. That's why both terms are used in the New Testament. We are slaves to Christ, but we choose to call ourselves bond slaves or bond servants, emphasizing a choice to serve in addition to the reality of who we are in Christ. These rules applied to male slaves, but there were also female slaves. They had rights, but they had some different rights. That's where we go next. Verse 7 through 11. If a man sells his daughter as a female slave, she is not to go free as the male slaves do. If she is displeasing in the eyes of her master who designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He does not have authority to sell her to a foreign people because of his unfairness to her. If he designates her for his sons... He shall deal with her according to the customs of daughters. If he takes to himself another woman, he may not reduce her food, her clothing, or her conjugal rights. If he will not do these three things for her, then she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Now, to understand this passage, once again, we have to appreciate what the words mean and what the customs expected. In verse 7, we hear of a father selling his daughter as a female slave and This sale would have been done for similar economic reasons. He was in debt and he had a daughter of marrying age. So he sells her as a servant to another man to cancel out his debt. Now, why would a father do this? Well, in reality, he's doing what any father would do with his daughter, at least in a sense. He is finding his daughter a husband. Marriages were a two part process in ancient times. First, every bride, every bride was bought. A price was paid to the father for the privilege of taking the daughter as a bride. Commonly, fathers would buy brides for their sons. Sometimes a groom might buy a bride for himself because maybe his father's already passed away. Later, you have a second phase of the wedding, which is when the wedding night occurs, the marriage is consummated, and then she formally becomes wife. But even in that intervening period between the two events, she's still betrothed, she still belongs to her groom her prospective groom, and the father has received a price for her, the father is no longer in control over that daughter. These two events could be separated by months or even years. But in the meantime, after the price was paid, that girl belonged to the one who bought her. Now, you see that situation play out in numerous examples in the Old Testament. One example is Isaac and Rebekah. So Abraham's servant goes to Haran to buy Isaac a bride finds Rebekah, pays the price for Rebekah. At that point, Abraham owns Rebekah. Rebekah then is to come back with the servant to find her bride. Then she eventually marries Isaac. Once she marries Isaac, she belongs to Isaac. So there was always money exchanged in some form when a bride was taken. 
In this case, the law is speaking of a situation in which a master takes a woman in exchange for the cancellation of a debt. He doesn't pay for the woman with cash in the way most would have bought a bride for their son. He gets to take her and then forgives a debt that this other man must have owed to him. And because the woman is taken in that way, in cancellation of a debt, instead of paid with money, it lowers her status. She's not considered now a daughter-in-law. She's considered a slave woman or a handmaiden would be another term or a servant girl. And she carries a lower status in the home. As a result, while the servant girl waits to marry, she serves in the home as a slave girl or as a handmaiden in the home. If she marries the master's son, we are told, then the law says in verse 9, she must be elevated to the status of daughter in the household because she has been married now to the master's son. She's become part of the master's family. But what if she's never given into marriage ever? She's betrothed, but the marriage never happens. Well, that's what this section of law is dealing with. That's where her rights step in. In verse 7, the law addresses the rights of a slave girl who has not been permitted to marry. If the delay stretches all the way to the seven-year point, then the freedom rule that we read about earlier does not apply to her. The woman cannot leave her slave status after seven years because she hasn't been married. That may sound harsh until you remember that a woman was always under authority, either of a father Or of a husband. Since her father sold her, she's now under the authority of that master and future husband. So there's no divorce possible. So there's no release possible. It's not a matter of her being a slave forever. It's a matter of her being bound in this home like any woman would be. But in verse 8, the law says, If the master is displeased with her and won't allow her to marry, then he must allow another man to purchase her from him so that she can marry him instead. And he can't sell her to a foreign husband because he doesn't like her and doesn't marry her. That's not fair to her. The woman must be married to another member of Israel. If he will not marry her and if he will not sell her, then she must be released without any payment required so that she can marry someone else. So in summary, an unmarried woman cannot be left in limbo forever. So this is God's grace to the woman in the Bill of Rights, that she must be married to the one who paid the bride price or the master must allow someone else to purchase her and marry her. And then finally, the culture considered a slave wife to carry a different status than a free woman. So let's say that the master bought her for himself and took her as wife. Now she is a concubine, technically speaking. And so like with Hagar and Sarah with Abraham, the slave wife or the concubine would be considered secondary in status to any other wife should the man take a free wife as well. So a man who took a slave girl as a wife would often still seek for a second woman who was free as a matter of status. In other words, they wouldn't be content with a slave wife. They would still want a free wife as well, and they might often go marry one. And when they took that second wife, the slave wife was considered less valuable than the free wife. Both the husband and the free wife would look down on the slave wife as second-class citizen in the family. You'll see that playing out exactly that way with Sarah and Hagar. So, in verses 10 through 11, the law addresses how a husband must treat his concubine, his servant wife, if he takes a free wife. The slave wife must continue to receive all necessary provision, like food and clothing, and the man must continue to do his duty as a husband to her and not deny her conjugal rights. Now, clearly, these laws are intended to protect the slave wife 
probably from that vindictive free wife more than anything else. And we see that sin evident not only in the story of Hagar and Sarah, but also in the four wives of Jacob, in which they play off one another with their respective concubines. Now, let's understand what the law is getting at here. The law is regulating the way men cared for concubines, but it is not endorsing the practice of multiple marriages. God's law is acknowledging here the reality of multiple marriages without endorsing it, without approving it, because that's one of the purposes of the law, to regulate the sinful hearts of men. You might ask, well, why doesn't God just outlaw multiple marriages directly in his word? Well, he does, in fact, when he defines marriage as one husband, one wife, one flesh. And in the testimony of Scripture, wherever you see multiple marriages occur, they are consistently portrayed as negative and harmful to the family. Furthermore, New Testament teaching reinforces the importance of taking only one wife when it declares that an elder of the church can only be qualified as such if he is a man of one wife. And we typically apply that today in the context of divorce and remarriage, which is fine. But it also is regard to this issue as well. And you see it play out even today because in some areas, particularly in Africa, they will come into unreached areas preaching the gospel and find converts among men who have already taken multiple wives in their prior pagan lifestyle. The counsel to those men now that they've become Christian and often their families with them is remain as you are, as Paul says. So a man can still serve multiple marriages in a godly way, given that's how he entered into his faith. And yet, by his status as a husband with multiple wives, we'd never put him in a position of eldership. Not because he's bad or sinful, but because he's a bad example or a bad model. What does it say to the next Christian that comes in the door if they see one of their elders with three wives? So, multiple marriages are wrong, and Scripture makes that clear. But when a man does choose to take a second wife... His sin, in that regard, does not render the second marriage invalid. Like in the case of divorce, the second marriage is formed through an act of adultery, but it is still a one-flesh relationship. Therefore, the man must honor the second marriage just as he should honor his first. Once again, we're not saying multiple marriages are appropriate. They're not appropriate. But once a second marriage is formed, it must be honored. You don't make that situation better through a divorce. This is why, again, why we would counsel men who come into the church already having those relationships to maintain them. But we certainly don't ask anyone to adopt them. And so the law addresses how to make the best of a sinful situation once that situation has developed. You already saw this principle earlier when we looked at Deuteronomy 24, where God acknowledged the reality of divorce and he made grace available to the abandoned woman to minimize the negative effects of her husband's sin, but that accommodation was not an endorsement of the practice, and nor is this acknowledgement intended to be an endorsement of multiple marriages. In fact, by the time Jesus came and walked the earth, multiple marriages were no longer permitted in Jewish society, even though the provision still existed in their law in that day, because the law hadn't changed, but they didn't practice it anymore. Finally, it's worth reiterating that the rights of slaves in Israel far exceeded the rights offered by other nations to their slaves. This was a tremendous advancement in the civil rights of people who found themselves in slavery. The institution of slavery as defined in the Bible is not sin, technically, so long as we're talking about this very specific form of slavery. Biblical slavery practiced under the law in Israel was voluntary, not forced, 
in which a man chose to enter in order to avoid paying a debt or to ensure that he had lifelong employment. His prior choices put him in a position where slavery was the best option for him and he would have often been grateful for that option given the alternative. Today, we have a very similar concept in law. We just use different words. We have a concept called bankruptcy in which it brings the consequences of someone's decisions back to bear on them in a societally acceptable way. Scripture teaches that debt often brings these kinds of consequences. And when we have debt, the Bible says we are essentially in a slavery to another. Today, we mean that euphemistically. I'm a slave to my bank. I'm a slave to my car loan or whatever. But in the Old Testament times, it just was literal. You went to work for the person you owed the debt to. Furthermore, slavery in the Bible does not mean and did not involve mistreatment at all. If a slave was mistreated, the master was guilty of a crime, which is what we're going to cover here in a few minutes. That is very different to the slavery that was practiced in the early years of our country or in so many other places of the world. Slaves didn't enter slavery voluntarily. They weren't set free after seven years. They were mistreated terribly. That form of slavery is never allowed in Scripture. It is always sinful. So when you hear someone who doesn't know what they're talking about tell you that the Bible can't be trusted, after all, it condones slavery. Well, they don't understand the word, not in the way the Bible uses it. So these laws are a reflection of God's grace in the way that he defended the interests of people who were in vulnerable situations in the case of slavery. And that's why the Bible acknowledges the reality of slavery as an institution so that it can regulate it and do the right thing for those in it. If it ignored the topic altogether, there would have been no regulation for the sake of those slaves, for the needs of those people. But there certainly still would have been slavery. And under the law's regulation of slavery, it became more of a job or an employment opportunity than the way we typically think of it today. Now, the next section of the ordinance runs until about verse 32 and deals with personal injury. If there's any attorneys in here, you're going to get really excited. Actually, not 32, 36. We're going to read verses 12 through 36. He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. But if he did not lie and wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint you a place to which he may flee. If, however, a man acts presumptuously toward his neighbor so as to kill him craftily, you are to take him even from my altar that he may die. He who strikes his mother or his father shall surely be put to death. He who kidnaps a man, whether he sells him or he is found in his possession, will surely be put to death. He who curses his father or mother shall surely be put to death. If men have a quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist and he does not die but remains in bed, if he gets up and walks around outside on his staff, then he who struck him shall go unpunished. He shall only pay for his loss of time and shall take care of him until he is completely healed. If a man strikes his male or female slave with a rod and he dies at his hand, he shall be punished. If, however, he survives a day or two, no vengeance shall be taken for he is his property. If men struggle with each other and strike a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet there is no injury, he shall surely be fined as the woman's husband may demand of him, and he shall pay as the judge decides. But if there is any further injury, then you shall appoint as penalty life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. If a man strikes the eye of his male or female slave and destroys it, he shall let him go free on account of his eye. And if he knocks out a tooth of his male or female slave, he shall let him go free on account of his tooth. If an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall surely be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall go unpunished. 
If, however, an ox was previously in the habit of goring and its owner has been warned, yet he does not confine it and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner shall be put to death. If a ransom is demanded of him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is demanded of him. Whether it gores a son or a daughter, it shall be done to him according to the same rule. If the ox gores a male or female slave, the owner shall give his or her master 30 shekels of silver and the ox shall be stoned. If a man opens a pit or digs a pit and does not cover it over and an ox or donkey falls into it, the owner of that pit shall make restitution. He shall give money to its owner and the dead animal shall become his. If one man's ox hurts another so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and divide its price equally and they shall also divide the dead ox. Or if it is known that the ox was previously in the habit of goring, yet its owner has not confined it, he shall surely pay ox for ox and the dead animal shall become his. The first section deals with various kinds of homicide. First, premeditated murder always results in the death penalty. The death penalty for murder is a legitimate and required penalty under the law of God. Do we have to follow this same prescription today? Well, not according to the law of Moses, we wouldn't because we're not under the law. But the requirement for a life for life predates the law of Moses, goes back to Genesis 9. I think you can make an argument there that that is the natural result God expects. In verse 14, we're told that this penalty should apply to everyone, even if you find a guilty party serving before the Lord's altar. So there's no status level within the society that gives you excuse for exceptions to this rule. You can get a sense up front how important God thought it would be that all men would respect life and that if anyone intentionally sought to kill another person, they were putting their own life on the line and that would hopefully be a deterrent. If the act was not premeditated, which today we call manslaughter, then a different penalty will apply. That person would be sent to a place that's called the city of refuge. And these places were designated within the nation of Israel, these towns that were designated as cities of refuge, and you could escape to that place. And if you made it there before the relatives of the person you killed found you, and they could, under the law, kill you, so they could take your life, but if you escaped and got to the city before they got to you, then they could not go in the city and you were not going to die as long as you stayed in the city. Now, don't think that these cities are a way to avoid punishment. On the contrary, these people live in the cities never to leave again, because if they ever walked outside that door, once again, the relatives could kill them. So as long as they stayed in the city, they could be alive, but they were isolated from their family. They were isolated from the world forever. They were surrounded by a bunch of other people who had done equally bad things. They were serving life sentence in prison because these were the equivalent to our prisons. So a city of refuge is a maximum security life sentence prison. But you went there voluntarily in lieu of dying. So from verses 18 through 27, now moving off that section, you read a fascinating list of personal injury law. And the general theme throughout all of it is do the right thing by your neighbor. When you harm someone, make restitution. If you fight and you hurt someone, you compensate them for what they lost and you care for them until they're well again. Isn't that interesting? The guy you beat up, you got to care for until he's fully recovered. If they die, revert back to verse 13. And then the law lists other capital offenses. Striking parents, cursing parents were punishable by death. The Hebrew word for strike means literally attack. So any attack against a parent was cause for death. But what's interesting is if you struck another adult, it was a lesser penalty. But striking your own parent was the death penalty. 
There was no provision in Jewish law for treating minors any differently than adults in any law at all. So if a child was mature enough to attack a parent, for example, in a deadly way, then he was considered old enough to know the penalty and pay the penalty. We can safely assume that these penalties were effective in discouraging such crimes. Kidnapping, punishable by death. You can see how men's penalties for these offenses have eroded over the years from the time God established them. I think that's why Paul says in 2 Timothy 3 that in the last days we will experience an outbreak of unprecedented evil in society, which included in that list disobedience to parents. Now, when Paul includes disobedience to parents in the same list as unholy, treacherous, haters of good, brutal, and others, then I think you can get a sense of how seriously the Lord views disobedience to parents and how much it is a contributor to the overall problems of society. In verses 20 through 21, you move on now to the rights of injured slaves. Slaves couldn't be murdered. Here again to what we said earlier, you can't mistreat your slave. Now, you can discipline a slave. Becoming a slave changed your status. Free men had rights that slaves gave up voluntarily. One of the things you gave up was the right to protect yourself against discipline from another man. This man owned you. If you didn't do what he said, if you were bad in some regard, either because you didn't work hard, you didn't follow instructions, or you were insubordinate in some fashion, you could be disciplined by him. You could be whipped. You could be struck. And those things were considered appropriate to a point. You couldn't be murdered, as we said, and you couldn't be disciplined to the point of injury, or otherwise the master now was responsible for that act, and he was held liable. If the discipline resulted in immediate death, then the master was punished just like any other murderer or manslaughter. If the person doesn't die right away, then the law looked upon the injuries a little differently. The master's penalty would only be the loss of the slave if he eventually died. So in other words, his penalty was the loss of the value of that slave. The presumption is that if the master had had premeditated intent to kill the person, then they would have died right away. He would have made sure they were dead before he stopped beating them or whatever he was intending to do to them. So if what he did injure them, but they could live at least two or three days, then the assumption is the master was unintentionally harming this person. He went too far, but not with the intent to kill. And so the price he paid was the economic loss of the servant. Now, that's where one of the differences apply between being a slave and being a free man. Remember, slaves become the property. That's what you gave up when you chose to become a slave. You put yourself in that position. Also, remember what Jesus said about it. Listen to his words when you know he lived in a society that practiced slavery in this way. Luke 12:42. And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward, or slave, whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that slave says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour when he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accordance with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. So before you judge God's word for its willingness to accommodate slavery in Scripture, consider that God allowed the institution so that we might have an accurate picture of our relationship with him. Without the institution of slavery in the world, I think we'd struggle to understand what it meant to be bound to Christ as a slave. 
or how we are obligated to obey him or what the penalties are for disobedience to the master. So in verse 22, the law addresses the rights of a mother who is injured and forced to give birth prematurely. If the baby survives, the woman is simply compensated for the injury and for the premature delivery. And the husband sets the amount and the judge enforces it if he approves. If the child dies, then the man who injured the woman is to die also. If the child was injured, then the person is to lose use of the same function of his body that the child lost. These rules on harm to an unborn child give rise to a couple of interesting observations. First, an unborn baby has standing apart from her mother or his mother in the law. The child is not considered an extension of the woman's body. The child is a separate life protected under law. Secondly, if the baby is not delivered alive, the person who caused the injury was guilty of murder. This counters the argument by abortion proponents that unborn children are merely part of the woman's body until birth and therefore she has the right to do what she wants with it, the law would stand and say no. So the principle in the law throughout is proportion, which is best summed up by eye for an eye. This principle in law is not intended to encourage retribution. Quite the opposite, it's intended to limit retribution. When someone is wronged, the wronged party should not expect more compensation than what was lost in the injury. So masters who harm slaves lose that slave. The slave is free. Owners whose animals harm another person lose the animal. Notice they don't get to keep the meat either. The animal is stoned and they can't eat the benefit of their own meat. They lose it. If the owner knows the animal is dangerous and does nothing, then when it kills again, that owner is guilty of murder and they pay the price for murder. They can either die or it says they can pay a ransom as demanded to avoid being killed. When negligence takes someone's property, you compensate them and you keep the property that you damaged. I think it's safe to say that the court system we have today has lost its sense of proportion. We invented losses like pain and suffering, which the law of God never recognizes. If somebody is harmed in, in a battle or in a fight and they aren't permanently injured, you don't owe them anything except carrying them through that period of time when, and paying for their lost time at work. So it's just proportionality, not beyond that. The Bible recognizes life is full of pain and suffering, but demanding a ransom for it doesn't erase that pain. So it's not a fair compensation, only if there's true loss. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, to remind us that when we love a neighbor, Father, it is done first and foremost with an intent to treat them fairly and to treat them rightly in all circumstances. And your law, Father, is the guide to our feet. It shows us what that looks like and helps us remember how to, how to re res respect and reflect that to others. We ask, Lord, that in the law written on our hearts, we'd see that opportunity in many ways to show others our love for them and our concern for them by a selflessness and a uh, proportionality. We also ask, Father, that what we've seen in the way it represents Christ or in your work of salvation through sacrifice, that we would be mindful of worshiping you in spirit and truth and not in any other way, not with a dependence on anything of this earth, for it is all going away. We look forward to that day and we pray it would come soon. And we look to complete our study, if you permit, in the weeks to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.